Hello, and welcome to the World We Live In podcast. I'm your host, Eric Patterson, and this week with me is Kyle Malden. Hello, everybody. He, uh, he's back from his uh, one-week hiatus. I, I'm, it's good to be back. Yeah, man, it's good to have you again. That was a, it was a fun episode with the girls, but, um, I mean, it was just different. <laughs> I'm sure it was. It was just different, <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, guys yeah, being dudes. It's just guys being dudes. I was just one guy being a dude that episode. Um, but yeah, we had a good episode with the girls. Um, and you know, it's different when there's like, when it's like a round table discussion. It's like a panel. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And that was like a very, I mean, it's an important issue. Like it was a very topically charged very episode. To- very topical. Yes. Very topical. Very definitely. topical. Definitely. But so it was fun. Um... And yeah. I feel like I feel like good insight and opinions on things that we uh, don't necessarily have as as men. No, it's very, that's I mean that's exactly why I wanted to do an episode like that is because we only have opinions. We we can only experience so much. Exactly, exactly. Girl, I mean, girls actually go go through that. Yeah, have gone through it. Uh huh. Yeah. So, yep. That was that was good stuff. Um, well, you start your uh, new job tomorrow. I do. I, I I start uh, my job with the uh, Tennessee Titans tomorrow. That's dude. It's gonna be fun. It is. I'm excited to start the new chapter. Yeah. Or I should say a, a new chapter. A new chapter. Yeah. I guess it's the new. This is like the final, the second to last chapter, because you work your whole life and then you retire for a short time and then you die. In a traditional sense. And it's right. So in a traditional sense. So this is like the second to last. <laughs> pre-retire and then you retire and you die so this i'm starting the next like 40 to 50 year chapter of of my life tomorrow starting your work life work guy yeah. forever <laughs> yeah you're, you're very cut and dry when you say that <laughs> you're very cut and dry that's funny no man dude it should be fun especially with uh nfl season in the fall it is yeah i'm, I'm excited um go titans yeah hopefully the nfl doesn't have any more issues with man, concussions not. or national protests national that protests. that make my job more difficult yeah dude i hope um, there's Man, I hope that it doesn't end up being some sort of strike or something. Uh, me neither. That would, I imagine, hurt my job, <laughs> my line of work quite a bit. <laughs> you might have a little, uh, little break in there. If that yeah, happens. if the if the players strike and there are no games, I imagine what we'd be having a hard time selling tickets. That would be a challenge. Speaking yeah. of work, you just went to uh, New York. Of work. I was in the Big Apple. Man, if you've never been to New York. It is a certain type of place. It is a certain type of place. Some would argue there's there's no other place like it. I I would argue that. Now I've never been to London and I've heard the two are somewhat comparable, but I would say London having been to both, I'd say London is not as compact, but not as compact, con- but yeah. continue. I'm not sure anywhere it, well, yeah. I'm sure I shouldn't say that. I'm sure there are places that are a lot more compact, like places like in India and stuff, but Beijing. Yeah, Beijing. But as far as American cities come, New York is pretty freaking packed. It, I mean, <laughs> dude, it's crazy. You fly into LaGuardia, and I'll try to keep this. I won't go too long on this, but you fly into LaGuardia, and uh, at least that's where I flew in. You fly into LaGuardia, and the runway in LaGuardia is really short. So you come in off the ocean, and you're like, oh, 
Oh, God. <laughs> Is he going to miss that? Uh, but anyway, get in there. They're doing a ton of work at LaGuardia. So it's like, especially at the B terminal where I landed, it was just mayhem. But um, that's just kind of how people do things in New York. It's just crazy. Um, but yeah, dude, the hotel I stayed at was really awesome. It was the New Yorker Hotel. It's like a classic old hotel. Mm-hmm. Um, dude, Muhammad Ali stayed there. So you see that in like movies and stuff. Yeah, dude, like Joe DiMaggio, the old Yankees. Nikola Tesla stayed there for 10 years. Wow. Yeah. Dude, so he just lived like at the hotel? Yeah, he lived. I think it was two different rooms. I think it was like 33-something and something else. Wow. Yeah, so he lived there. I don't know. I, ha- I haven't checked this out, but I think he may have died at the hotel. Yeah, but I'm not sure details on that. But yeah, man, dude, the, yeah, the uh, people at the company, really, really great people. Um, I got treated to the Modern Museum of Art, or uh-huh. Museum of Modern Art. Uh, that was really awesome. Got to see Starry Night, got to see, um, uh, oh, Monet's, like the, have you seen the, li- the lily pads? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I got to see some Picasso. It's one of my favorite paintings, actually. Dude, it's huge. The, the Monet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was good. And then dude, some great Italian food. Of Got course. to taste some really good wines. Um, fancy guy. I do. Well, for free. <laughs> one, of, one of my coworkers, um, he, <laughs> he used, um, so he used to um, be, he used to be friends with these people who used to own this wine shop. Okay. Long story short, wine shop got closed. Like, they just, it just closed he still uses the card that they would give him to go to these private events it's been close to like five years or something he still uses the card for a closed wine shop to go to these private events love it so he brought me along as his italian wine associate yeah we both got in for free. connoisseurs connoisseurs yeah wine connoisseurs but no man there's some these people that were actually at this event were, they don't even swallow the wine. I know, you, you switch you, you switch around, spin it in a bucket. Yep. <laughs> I was out. like, wow. And you know what's, what's crazy to me is that those wines are like so expensive. They're coveted. Oh, yeah. And they're it's coveted. just like, that's just like part of it, you know? It's just, like Yeah, it's what they do. If you if you swallow it, it's, it's I don't know, it's, it's like bad taste. No, well, we were going around <laughs> and like, we went to like three or four. We didn't go to a ton, but we were going around and like tasting wines. And people would ask like, "Oh, do you want?" Because they would take you from like their their like not so greatest, which is still great, to like their best. <laughs> All right. And we we're like, no, no, we we we're, we don't have that much time, so we just take their best. You, you could tell they're like, <laughs> like yeah. These guys. I mean, you're you're pulling off just a great scam. Oh, I mean, yeah, it was brilliant. And we got some Italian ham and just some other great Italian food. Um, that's hilarious. Yeah, it was good. <laughs> it was good stuff. Um, so I had a good trip. Great city. So much, so much ethnicity. Just so much culture. It, yeah, it, it is. Oh, my God, dude. I like, mean, really his, historically as well. I mean, Ellis Island. Unbelievable. Just... Unbelievable. The, one of the Italian places we went to, there was a... Did you only eat Italian food? I ate a lot of Italian <laughs> food. I ate a lot of Italian I had Thai food one night, but other than that, I think I ate Italian food every night. Wow. Yeah. We had, uh, there, was, there was an Irish place, a Chinese place, and an Italian place right next to each other. Just, I mean, that's just that's just perfect picture of New York. Um, but so that was fun. That was fun. But we won't, uh, we won't dwell on that. Um, but if you get the chance, go to New York. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, 
Uh, we got a couple good stories for you today. Um, I'm going to let Kyle take the first one. Um, and then I'll t- uh, finish it off with the second one. Yeah, so this this story is from Atlas Obscura. Yeah. Um, the title of the article is The Africans Who Called Tudor England Home. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the Tudor dynasty uh, was from... 1485 to 1603, uh, I'd say it's been made famous by the TV show The Tudors. Mm, probably. Uh, I, I know that's why I first heard of it. I think I was in high school. Um, but this article basically outlines how there were hundreds of uh, North and West Africans that immigrated from Africa to England and how they lived as free people. And the article goes on to say how we think of uh, the the Eurocentric view of Africans at this time is that most of them were slaves or seen as slaves and whatnot. Um, there's a few reasons for this. One, because this is kind of just predating the slave trade, this, this Tudor period. And secondly... I thought this was uh, pretty interesting, is that uh, there was a minor issue with some English nationals uh, becoming upset that Africans were taking their jobs. That sounds familiar. I know. That's that's why I was like, wow, I have have heard this before. Somewhere. Somewhere I've heard of that. Believe it or not, immigrants do uh, work hard. You know, they... If you think about it, though, it makes sense. If you come to a country and you don't really know anyone or you don't know anything, you have to you have to naturally work a little harder to... Dude, to, uh, dude I would argue the only thing you can do is work oh, hard. Absolutely. I mean, what are you going to do? Sit around and wait for something to happen? That's just not how it works. No. Yeah. I mean, you're probably pretty scared. Oh, yeah. Dude. You are going to... It, you, you, you kick into, like, survival mode. You do, totally. Um... And so the, this article, they highlight... Let me find this guy. Uh, his name is... Was it Blanc? Blanc? Yeah. Blanc, yeah. Was that the, uh, the musician? Uh, yes, I believe so. Oh, yes, it was. So he... Um, oh, he, yes. He it was what would have been the most famous musician in England at the time. He was part of... Uh, King Henry the Seventh's court. Mm-hmm. He's a trumpeteer. Trumpeteer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Blanc was hired. Uh, the job came with high wages, room and board, clothing, is cons- and was considered the highest possible position a musician could obtain in Tudor England. Mm. That's th- that's so cool. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah, um, this is I, this is really interesting. Well, the and this article is referencing a book called uh-huh. The Black Tutors. Yes. Um. So the, this the book definitely goes into more depth. But yeah. So yeah, the the book uh, is uh, by oh, what's her name? Anyway, it's called The Black Tutors, and the book highlights uh, ten. Africans' lives living in England at the time and kind of 
what their lives were like and what they did and how they operated as uh, like equal citizens and free people. Yep. And they had the right, I mean, like I said, free people to land, uh, you know, jury, to marry whoever they wanted, uh, to go in whatever field that they wanted. And so for a long time, looking back on history, they were seen as, or they were thought of to be slaves because like I said, they uh, would, would outwork Englishmen. And so there was a letter that Queen Elizabeth I wrote that said, if any Africans are causing problems, you can deport them as long as it's okay with their masters. Uh, however, along further review, Kaufman, the person who uh, wrote the book, found that this use of masters was more appropriate as an apprenticeship to master as opposed to like a, a you know a slave and a master uh, which I thought was pretty interesting because obviously short thereafter with the Atlantic slave trade you know we don't really use the term master anymore we call the people we work for Boss. bosses boss man uh, and I think it is also notable during this time, during the the Tudor reign in 1596, an English court ruled in quotes, England is has too pure air for slaves to breathe in. This is uh, in England like the first legally uh, binding, I guess, rule that slavery is is not allowed, and uh, apparently it was kind of like a non-issue. Because there weren't like a ton of slaves there anyway. Yeah. It says um, more than 60 Africans were baptized in England between 1500 and 1640. And they were also buried. It says, quote, the church was a central and social, sorry, was a central social and cultural institution. Your Your membership in the church helped cement you as a legal person. So, right, so I think that's interesting as well because instead of how things became, how, like, race and, I guess, money, uh, like, divided people, in this time, religion was everything. It was. That was was the cornerstone. And, yeah, later, later in that quote, it says, if you became poor, sick, or were injured, your parish had an obligation to take care of you. Yeah. So religion was the the precedent i mean and at this time pretty much everyone you know was was the same was the same faith yeah i think this is really i i've never heard of this i haven't either yeah i've never heard of this um which i think is interesting now i don't know if people in england know this I mean, we would, I would, have, uh, we would have no idea. Uh, yeah. But, um, it's really, I don't, I, I don't even, I don't even know, like, how to express that this is just super unique compared to what we, like, what we know of the cut and dry, like, slaves were taken from Africa or. Africans were taken and made slaves. Right. So what I think is really interesting is at the end of the article, it says that this idea of of, uh, 
So obviously there there had been slavery before, but this idea of defining like black and white uh, came about through the Atlantic slave trade mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. how slaves were, you know, Africans were thought of, you know, uneducated, like less than to where it helped, it helped feed the slave narrative Yeah, yeah. during, you know, during expansion, during, it says that the Dutch, when they expanded to... Barbados, they taught uh, the people living there how to farm sugar, and then they brought slaves over to help that process. And obviously, not having to pay your workers is monetarily um, beneficial. And from this idea, England kind of hopped on hopped on board as well. And I think it's so interesting that just a little bit before this, there was at least from what the this article sounds like that there is very little racial tension in England. Yeah, that's what it, that's what it sounds like. It sounds like um yeah, it sounds like the the black the Africans that were a part of society were just a part of society. Yeah. And that after people forgot about this, it turned into a racial issue. Oh, right. I mean, the slave trade was such a big... Oh, I mean, dude, millions and millions of Africans just being put into slavery. Dude, the, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a horrendous, horrendous thing. Right. Yeah. This quote, as more black people were enslaved, Europeans began to write off black people as naturally slaves or as benefiting from slavery. Yeah. These benefits included Christianity and civilization, both of which black Africans were assumed to lack. I mean, we, we've talked about it before. Money, dude, the, the money. Money is it's, al- it's always the money. And I imagine that this pro-slave narrative was obviously massively financially beneficial to the point where it seemed like obvious well, it, it it would squelch out any other narrative. Oh, oh right. That that's what I'm saying is yeah. that I'm sure it was so forced and so pushed that any other idea wouldn't seem like beneficial. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it would seem like someone would bring up this issue, or someone would bring up this fact, and you're like, no, that's not true. Right. Like that. Like that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. It, what. Africans were part of society in the 1500s? No. Are you kidding me? What? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. That has... I mean, that had to be people's natural reaction if this was ever brought up. It's like, what? No. I mean, and it it hurts England. It hurts the financial, you know, institutions. Oh, yeah. I mean, I can't even imagine the amount of money those (laughs) plantation owners were making off of... Free labor. Free labor. I mean, they weren't even paying. I mean, there was no money given to slaves. No. I mean, they were dehumanized. It was. I mean, it was. It was horrendous. So yeah, what what was what was your like initial reaction when reading? I uh. So my initial reaction was like, were I. You, were you surprised? I was a little surprised. Yeah. But I wasn't like very surprised. Yeah. I think. I don't think I so uh, I don't think racism is natural, but I think it is natural to fear the unknown and things that are different from yourself. Mm-hmm. Especially in this time when the worldview is so limited. 
That's true. So, like I said, I don't think racism is natural, but I don't think if you completely don't understand how the world really works, I can see where racism would come into play. However, I was not surprised that there were predominant Africans living in England. Yeah. Yeah, that was... I would say that was about my idea. I was I was surprised to I was surprised at the headline. Yes. And then I started to get into it and I was like, oh man. Like that makes sense. Like the people came over the Africans came over on Portuguese trade ships and Maybe They made it they just made it. Yeah. Yeah, they made it. I mean if you could do the job, you could do the job. You could be a trumpeteer, <laughs> you could you could be the best trumpeteer in all of England, yeah. I mean Makes sense. It is a uh, yeah. It's amazing to me that, and like a little frustrating that these people had uh, you know like a like a foot in the door like in England uh-huh. like the the immigrated Africans and that it just went like so far the other way. So far, I mean, dude, one eighty. Yeah, just the narrative totally switched. Uh huh. Yeah. That is a. Uh, Frustrating. frustrating. I thought it. I thought it was very interesting, though. It is like you said. It's not something that you hear or learn about. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm, her. Oh, the author's name is. Um, the last name's Kaufman. Uh huh. It is Miranda Kaufman, historian and author. The book is the black or just black tutors. I might do. I might have to. Uh, I'm. I'm. I'm interested. Further detail. Oh. I might have to get it. Um. Just. Just for note. Uh. The most. The most famous tutor is uh, Henry the Eighth. Yeah. Yes. For For those of you who yeah. who who don't know. Um. Yeah. He he caused a lot of problems in England. <laughs> he did cause a lot of problems. Yeah, that was a uh, interesting time. Interesting. I would not want to live back then. No. No. He not. he. Yeah. So Henry VIII uh, is best known for his six marriages and starting his own church. Oh yes, he broke off. Yeah. He broke off uh, from the Church of England. He gave the middle finger to the Pope. Yes, he did. <laughs> Separating the Church of England from papal authority. Nice. So. It's a bold move. Oh, you know when you're king. Oh, to be king. <laughs> oh, to be oh, to be king. <laughs> well, that's good. Anything else on that one? Uh, yeah. No, that's all. Yeah, that's, that's all I have. That's a good guy. Well, um, I was bored in the airport yesterday. Oh, you and, don't say. <laughs> and I won't tell you about my uh, airplane troubles because that I mean it's just boring. But I was. Um, we've referenced this book a couple times. Dark lore. Um, this is the ninth edition, and I was re. I they have a bunch of stories in here, but I was uh, I got on this um, on this one, but on this one uh, story called the most important man on the planet. It's about a guy who was tied to the JFK conspiracies, and just a really strange story. So this guy's name is Carrie Thornley. And he was born in uh, Whittier, 
Uh, California. Yeah, Whittier. Yeah, Whittier. It's in okay. Southern California. Oh, there you go. In uh, 1938, um, the very same uh, place of Orange County that... Um, Whittier kind of sucks. That's where Richard Nixon was born. In Whittier? Was he really? Yeah. That explains a lot. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so this guy, um, this guy Thornley, his, his story starts off really interesting. Interesting might be a... Not the best word, but... Oh, uh, Thornley, sorry for interrupting. Yeah. I went to USC. Oh. Alma mater, University of Southern California. There you go. Oh, it doesn't look like he... Did you look him up? I did. Yeah. Fight on. <laughs> Fight on <laughs> for all our Southern California <laughs> listeners. <laughs> um, so, yeah, he, um, in, uh, I guess in high school, he started, or him and his uh, teenage pal, Greg Hill, um... <laughs> says they inadvertently invoked Eris, uh, er- yeah, a goddess of chaos, Greek goddess of chaos and discord. Um, in the aftermath of a caffeine-induced vision, they founded the spoof religion called Tiscor- Discordianism. It is, as well as its disorganizational branch called the Discordian Society. Okay. Okay, so this is, uh, it was initially a joke. And by the late 60s, the Discordian Society um, began to attract the, uh, it says, a loose-knit group of writers and artists and free spirits. So you can imagine the 60s. The 60s Southern California, baby. God, I can only imagine. So um, they made up uh, basically alter egos for themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, It was more like different names. So uh, it says, Thornley embraced the Discordian persona of Lord Omar Kayam Ravenhurst, while Greg became known as Maliclips the Younger. And uh, some of their other um, members included uh, Playboy editor Robert Anton Wilson, who is Mordecai the Fowl. Robert. <laughs> love, love that name. <laughs> Mordecai. Robert Shea was Josh the Dill. Um, and he co-authored the counterculture classics, the Illuminatus trilogy, um, um, with the first book in the series dedicated to none other than Hill and Thornley. Okay. So these guys started this weird Discordian society or whatnot. Uh, they start to get a following, um, the, during, during Thornley's junior year of high school, he enlisted in the Marine Corps Reserves. Uh, he went to boot camp that boot camp that summer, and then came back and finished high school. Um, the following year, he attended USC as a journalism major, but quickly lost interest in his pursuit of the academic life. Um, Thornley figured the most immediate way to kind of travel the world was to enlist in the Marines. Um, so this is in the spring of 1959. He enlisted in the Marines, and his first stop was El Toro Marine Base near Irvine, California. Um, and this was where he crossed paths with Lee Harvey Oswald. You don't say. You don't say. Lee Harvey Oswald. Um, if anyone's not familiar with the name Lee Harvey Oswald, uh, JFK assassination. Uh, apparently. Apparent, supposedly. Supposedly Lee Harvey Oswald. Assassinated JFK. That's what the government tells us. That's the mainstream narrative. Okay. So... They begin this friendship where um, they talk about. Um, so they were they were stationed together for there for three months, um, and they 
they begin this friendship where they interact um, at off-duty hours and at the rec hall um, or between drills and field exercises where they started engaging in discussions about Marxism, uh, George Orwell's 1984 book, um, Mm -hmm. and other subjects that were just a little bit off-kilter at the time. Um, So... They talk about, the author talks about how Oswald was always kind of a weird dude just talking about strange stuff. Um, So before that, um, he was a radar operator with a security clearance at uh, Atsugi Air Base in Japan. Thornley or? Uh, This was Lee Harvey Oswald. Oswald. Oswald was stationed at Atsugi Air Base in Japan. Um... Now, Thornley described Oswald as an outfit eight ball. Um, he would always be cracking jokes about, uh, or he would always be cracking jokes in a Russian accent referring to his fellow Marines as comrades, which I can only imagine didn't go over well. Not, um, not great. And apparently he um, acquired the nickname Oswaldskovich. So just like a little play on a little, Russian. A little Russian. Yeah. KGB. <laughs> KGB. Um, so um, now Oswald had a strange career. He returned stateside with the rank of private, which was unusual for people. Apparently, it was unusual for people that had been stationed overseas to come back still as a private. It uh-huh. says um, most people would come back at least with the rank of cor- with the rank of corporal. So apparently uh, Oswald had some had just some run-ins with some upper uh, echelon officers, uh, staff officers. It said he poured a beer over a staff officer's head, that permanently damaged his promotional potential. That's so, tough. That's not that's not how to. Not what you want to do. No. So Oswald had a rough military career. Anyway, in June 1959, Thornley was transferred to Aksugi Air Base in Japan, where Oswald had previously been stationed. Okay. Now, during this time, uh, it, the author says Aksugi Air Base was among the CIA's most critical installations from which the U-2 spy plane originated. Mm-hmm. I assume to fly missions over Russia and whatnot. Yeah. Um, but anyway... Um, now, Thor- it says Thornley performed the same job as Oswald, that of a radar technician. And uh, researchers A.J. Weberman and Michael Canfield, um, uh, Atsugi Air Base, Atsugi was devoted to grooming intelligence agents, CIA intelligence agents, um, one of whom they contended was Oswald. Um, and it was at Atsugi that Oswald was taught Russian as part of his intelligence training. Okay, so the the tough part about this story is there's a lot of people and a lot of moving places. Uh-huh. So from this point on, I'm going to try to keep them straight. And if you don't understand, just let, say let me know. Okay. Okay, so these two contended that Oswald was taught Russian um, as part of his language training. And it says during Oswald's stint at Aksugi, he spent many off-duty hours at a Tokyo nightclub um, where he supposedly met some Russian women. Uh-huh. And um, it was conjectured that Oswald's Queen Bee girlfriend was actually... The Queen Bee was the nightclub. That his Tokyo nightclub girlfriend was actually a Soviet spy 
who had ensnared the naive, <laughs> said ensnared the naive lad into a web of international intrigue. Oh wow. Okay, so this this was supposedly his. I don't know initiation into Russian intelligence. Yeah, order. yeah. Okay. Of course, go you know go get a Russian girlfriend. Yeah, and Oswald actually defected to the to Russia before the Kennedy assassination, which I did not know. Wow. Yeah, I, I did had not no know idea that about either. That. Um, now this theory of Oswald as spy was seconded by seconded by another former Marine, David Bucknell. And according to Bucknell, the Queen Bee Bar Girls were trying to pump Oswald for information. And when he reported this to the brass, he was encouraged to bed down the girls and feed them disinformation. Oh. It's kind of a little double agent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's, that, a, that's a pretty good play on the girls' part. Yeah. You know, work at a club, look at the guys up. Oh, what do you do? Oh, I'm a secret agent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, by the way, <laughs> yeah. I know all this, you know, CIA stuff. CIA stuff, yeah, exactly. I've seen these pictures of Russia. Yeah. yeah from the spy planes. So it says this may explain a citation discovered in Oswald's marine records as published in the Warren Report. Um, that indicated he was treated for gonorrhea contracted in the line of duty. Oh. Good old duty. In <laughs> <laughs> uh, a lot of duty, not due to own misconduct. So, there you go. Imagine, um, imagine that. Imagine that, man. Uh, it says, Thornley later speculated that Oswald may have been working for military intelligence to identify potential security risks at El Toro, such as those sympathetic to the Marxist cause uh-huh. and all those, uh, all that other communist hysteria that was going on at the time. Um, and Kerry started speculating that this might be himself. Um, and if this was true, that might explain why Oswald cultivated a relationship with Kerry. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, um, so Thornley, Thor- during this time, Thornley started writing books about a disillusioned Marine during the Cold War. Um, the protagonist, it says, was a work in progress. Um, and the protagonist at the time was a guy named Johnny Shelburne. He was a composite character based on Thornley and other Marines he had known during the time, one of whom was Oswald. Um, in October of 59, Thornley was mind-blown when he read in the Stars and Stripes that Oswald had defected to the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Um, and this caused a shift in the book that he was writing. Um, and from that point forward, the lead character, Johnny Shelburne, became based on Oswald. The fact that Thornley was writing a novel based on Oswald three years before the JFK assassination... Would so this caused people to think that there was some something going on there. Um, so Bet- that between Thorn Thornley, Thornley and, and Oswald. Oswald, yeah. Mm-hmm. So after um, he was discharged from the from the Marines, Thornley goes to New Orleans um, in the French Quarter with uh, Greg Hill, the guy from high school, right, and. <laughs> They, they mess around there. Um, it says Thornley's main motivation there was just to gather material for future books. Because okay. um, it was an interesting... Oh, I mean, little, New Orleans little, is always an interesting city. A little research. Business trip. Business trip. Business yeah. or pleasure. Um, so um, here he made the acquaintance of 
some shady characters. A guy named Slim Brooks and Gary Kirstein. If anyone has goes by the name Slim, <laughs> guaranteed, guaranteed, shady. Dude, I was that thinking guy, the same thing. That guy, other is the guy or knows guys. Like if he goes by Shady Blank, you'd be like, hey. I need I need a, like a stolen car or like yeah. I need drugs and he's like oh what well, you know I got you yeah well I know a guy and like that that's just that's just the way it works I don't know anyone that goes by Slim but I imagine if I did <laughs> he'd be my guy for all of the illegal things that I would need maybe I don't know it's kind of like Grease Malden no dude yeah. <laughs> Slim Malden <laughs> it's, yeah. no Slim it is it's just a it's just a very greasy it's you just know a what that dude's about name. you know what that dude's about you know about. what he's doing yeah there's there's no disguising that um so Gary Kirstein the other guy he was known as AKA the brother-in-law so these guys will be important uh, as we get along the story, so remember those two. So Brooks and Kirstein, they were apparently involved in the underworld of New Orleans, as one can imagine by their names. Um, they also claimed uh, they also claimed connections with the intelligence community embedded in New Orleans. So in the fall of 62, Brooks and Kirstein engaged uh, Carey in a theoretical discussion about how to kill a president. JFK in particular. Good old, good old fashioned. Good old uh, fashioned assassination. Yeah, talk. yeah, just just around the fireplace. Yeah, <laughs> when I read that, I was just like, okay, like how did someone just say, hey, how do we kill a president? I mean, I, I've thought, I've thought about it. I've thought about it, but then I realized it'd be way too difficult to pull <laughs> oh off my God. today. Something that I'm not capable of. No, 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 just impossible. I, Although I would they, argue some, impossible. they do have, they do have military training. So they're a little more advanced than we are. A little bit advanced. Um, So I won't go into the details of that because it's kind of silly. But anyway, um, on a fateful day on November 22nd, 1963, Thornley uh, was waiting tables at Arnaud's restaurant in the French Quarter when news broke of the JFK assassination. There were no TVs or radios in the restaurant. Right. According to the waiter, news outlets were reporting that the Dallas police had picked up a suspect identified as a former Marine. It says, although the waiter couldn't remember the suspect's name, it was reported that he defected to Russia for a couple years before returning to the U.S. So, Kerry correctly guessed the guy's name, and the people in the restaurant freaked out. Right. Um... Yeah, they started, uh... They started gossiping that Kerry might... Um, be oh, yeah. Harvey Oswald's be, brother. Right, so you know, he's in on it. He's in on He's in on the deal. Um, so Thornley was heartbroken over Kennedy's death, it says, and um, obviously, so, obviously it sounds like Kerry had some, con- he was a very counterculture guy. He had uh-huh. some contempt, it sounded like he had some contempt for, for um, I mean, he's, JFK. He's, he started a fake religion. Exactly. Well, yeah, and he started that back then. So, um, anyway, it goes on, um, Carrie and his, and his pal Carlos Castillo, um, wound up at the Bourbon House restaurant, um, where they made tongue-in-cheek toasts to the Marine Corps drill instructor who had taught Oswald to fire his rifle. Oh, wow. So that's pretty, that, that's Yikes. rough. That's rough. Yikes. Um, so not long after the assassination, Carrie was questioned by both the FBI and the Secret Service. Uh-huh. Um... Who were most likely tipped off by someone at the restaurant. Um, 
So the feds seem satisfied that he was innocent of any nefarious association with Oswald. Um, now, Carrie grew, to sus- Carrie grew to suspect that in the days following the assassination, he was being followed by oh, and I'm sure, government I'm sure, agents. I'm sure it was. Which makes total sense. Um, it's also, I'd like to point out, it's way easier to prove that you are not associated with someone like yeah. back then. Like, you're probably, if you are communicating with someone, it's through, like, phone calls and... I don't know, letters. It's not like there. Because everything that you like text, email, tweet, whatever, is like stored in it like a database somewhere. Totally. And yeah. so every, if, like if you're emailing someone, I mean, look at the, look at like the whole thing with like Clinton. Oh and they even tried to like destroy <laughs> like the servers or like the peers or whatever. And like, like they still found it. Like it's, it's, it's out there. If, if they want to find evidence, they will find evidence. So it makes sense that if he's not in the same city, yeah, he it would be far easier to say, no, like I haven't spoken to this person or, or, exactly. or whatnot. Yeah. So does everything make sense from this point? Yes. Okay, cool. Okay, so in 65, Thornley returned to Southern California where he started uh, being the editor of a libertarian newsletter called The Innovator. Um... In April of that year, uh, they released, um, or Thornley released his first published work, Oswald, where he presented how an individual involved in radical politics could evolve into a political assassin, a theory that deeply offended many Warren Report critics, one of whom was David Lifton. Lifton would go on to author the best-selling book, Best Evidence, Disguise and Deception in the Assassination of JFK. So, um, this happened, um, Carrie started giving lectures at the Henry George schools in San Diego and Los Angeles, as well as an interview with, uh, Public Radio in Los Angeles. Um, in 66, The Innovator published an article called Postman Against the State. This was an interesting side note. It dealt with the non-governmental postal systems throughout history that had functioned more effectively than the government-operated systems. Um, and so they started receiving complaints from readers about snooping on part of the U.S. Postal Service. Kerry sent a copy of this book to the uh, Robert Anton Wilson, who was the editor of Playboy, or uh-huh. um, an associate editor of Playboy. Um, they began this correspondence. Um, so Thornley started immersing himself into this counterculture along with experimenting with psychedelics. He helped organize the Griffith Park Human Beings and formulating his own philosophy called Zenarchy. Um, which I won't go into. Uh, there's a little. There's some detail here, uh, just about just some of that summer of love, psychedelic, uh-huh. yeah. sexual induced. Well, it already, it already it sounds like that he, like you said, he's pretty counterculture and yep. like anti-government. Very anti-government. Very counterculture. I imagine he thrived in that uh, era. Yes. Yes. It, well, it see, it seemed like when he moved to LA, he started getting into like writing as he had wanted to previously. Uh-huh. So, at this, uh, so this is where it kind of gets, it kind of drifts away from Thornley um, a little bit. 
So the New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison launched his if his famous investigation, which contended that a cabal of rogue intelligence agents had masterminded the JFK assassination. And its base of operations was the Guy Bannister Detective Agency in New Orleans. Um, before Garrison was able to bring this case to trial, Bannister and David Ferry, another suspect in the case, mysteriously died. At this point, the key suspect in the case became Clay Shaw, the director of New Orleans Trademark and a former CIA asset. Okay. Okay. I had no idea about that. Uh Uh-huh. In the spring of 63, Lee Harvey Oswald moved from Texas to New Orleans. And during this time, he became involved in some communist organizations, um, including the New Orleans branch of Fair Play for Cuba Committee. That is uh, (laughs) as rush as it gets. You can only imagine Uh, what they discuss there. (laughs) So Garrison theorized that Bannister and his crew set up Oswald as the fall guy by creating a cover story that he was a radicalized communist with a trigger finger. Uh Uh-huh. So pretty straightforward. In 68, Garrison issued a press release stating that Carrie Thornley was a CIA agent who had participated in this assassination conspiracy just like Bannister, Ferry, and Shaw. Um, also, a list, uh, also listed among these suspects was Gordon Novel, or Gordon Novell, who had attended USC with Carrie a decade earlier. Uh-huh. So, um, these things just start to pile upon themselves. Um, Garrison, um asserted that Thornley was part of the crew um, enlisted to set up Oswald prior to the assassination. Right. And that his Warren Commission testimony, Uh Carrie's Warren Commission testimony, as well as his book Oswald, were concocted to portray Oswald as a commie-influenced lone nutter. So does that make sense? Yeah, it's just like propaganda. It's all propaganda. His Warren Commission testimony is all propaganda. Yeah. For for those of you that don't know, the Warren Commission is uh, what was... The investigation that was put out uh, after JFK's uh, death, that was like the investigation that um, was given to the public. It was, a, was it the, it was a government investigation. It, it, it was, it was the government uh, investigation on JFK's um, assassination. Yeah. Yeah, I probably should have stated that. I just kind of went with the flow, though. But yes, that... I'd say, I'd say most people know. I would say most people, or at least have heard of it. Hopefully. Yeah, and just got the context. <laughs> if you didn't, now you if do. You, yeah, now you, now you do. Okay, so... Um, Garrison also suspected that Thornley had been with Oswald's wife. Um, all part of Thornley's supposed role as one of the notorious Oswald doubles running around New Orleans and Dallas prior to the assassination. Uh-huh. Um, so this guy is basically trying to bring down Thornley and a bunch of other people as part of this cabal setting up Oswald. So, yes, um, Oswald, as the theory goes, was set up as the assassination fall guy. Carrie later suspected that he was, as well, may have been set up in a similar manner as a secondary fall guy. Uh Uh-huh. 
Had the Oswald setup gone not, wrong. Not worked, yeah. yeah. So it says, taking this one step further, it could be conjectured that Carrie, Carrie's apparent chance meetings with the likes of Shaw, Bannister, and Ferry were actually orchestrated to be later used against him. Uh-huh. So it's kind of a double-layered thing. Right. He Obviously, he didn't know at the time that, that any of this was going to happen. Yep, yep. Um, it says, to Carrie, this seemed the only way to reconcile the alarming coincidence that coincidences that placed him in the company of Garrison's rogue gallery of suspects, um, as well as in the proximity of Oswald's movements during, uh, during August and September of 63. So after this, um, it's like reverse slumdog millionaire. Wow. Instead of all the things in his life that are making, are benefiting him, they are setting him up to go to jail for the rest of his life. <laughs> Seriously. Um, so among Jim, among Garrison's more uh, colorful unofficial investigators was an Alan Chapman who subscribed to the theory that JFK's assassination had been orchestrated by the Bavarian Illuminati, uh-huh. the infamous secret society um, that, I mean, there's a whole conspiracy lore about that as well. About kind of the the Illuminati's its own its own yeah episode. its own its own thing. Basically, some people think the Illuminati is a secret organization that runs the world. Yeah. For for more more or less. Yes, more or less. That's true. So this guy Chapman also believed that the major television networks were controlled by the Illuminati. This is rather interesting to note. Um, where oh, it was like. Oh, it might be later. It was like NBC was the. I'll try to find it. it oh, it's it, oh here it is. CBS was the conspiring um, Bavarian seers. ABC was the ancient Bavarian conspiracy, and NBC was the nefarious Bavarian conspirators. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so that's interesting. Um. Anyway. Some people uh, still believe it. So, uh, hey, people <laughs> believe a lot of things. So, that was just kind of a side note. Um, Garrison, eventually, in the 1970s, uh, Garrison undertook a legal maneuver to try this Thornley case. At the time, it came to a surprise to Carey, who assumed the perjury charges against him had been dropped following Clay Shaw's. So that guy, Clay Shaw, got acquitted in 69. Okay. Um, It says, Garrison came after me one last time in 1970 just for harassment purposes because I had put an advertisement in a libertarian magazine that said... Actually, I'm not going to go into that. It's pretty... He basically... He basically wrote some pretty nasty stuff about... Garrison. Uh huh. Um, and then, so he. Of course, pissed him off. And yeah, then pissed he, him off. He went after him. And then he went after him, and then everything got dropped. Yeah, he just said, so the lawyer that Thornley got was Garrison's brother in law. Okay. And basically, he just said, stop writing stuff. And yeah. He did, so everything was dropped. Uh-huh. So, uh huh. So, in the early 70s, um, New JFK revelations started appearing in a book, Coup d'etat in America, um, an acronym for the CIA's alleged complicity in the assassination. 
So these authors, A.J. Weberman and Michael Canfield, presented the theory that there were three mystery tramps that were picked up by the police in Dealey Plaza. Um, and they were actually spies in disguise acting as an assassination team. Weberman and Canfield presented photographic evidence that one of the tramps, known as the Old Man Tramp, was actually E. Howard Hunt, a renowned CIA agent who had been involved in a bunch of covert operations, including the Watergate burglary and the failed Bay of Pigs invasion. Wow. I mean, those are like two of the most notable. Oh, easily. I'd probably, those, I mean, and JFK are like the three most notable. I feel like political things like from that era. From that era, oh for sure, yeah. I mean, Bay of Pigs is the one I think about initially, just because it was failed. Uh huh. Um, but Thornley came across his evidence, and he immediately recognized Hunt as the shadowy character he'd met in New Orleans over a over a decade earlier, Gary Kirstein. Wow. AKA the brother-in-law. Oh no. <laughs> it should be noted that Hunt during the course of his checkered uh, covert career was a renowned master of disguise known for impersonating people. Yeah. This brother-in-law revelations opened up a floodgate of associated memories for Carrie and he began to suspect that he'd been set up as a patsy in the assassination and that Gary Kirstein had been one of his handlers. Wow. Okay? One disturbing memory involved the theft of a typewriter from Carrie's French Quarter apartments following Memorial Day 1961. During this period, Kirstein commissioned Carrie to conduct research for a book project titled Hitler Was a Good Guy. While working on the project at the New Orleans Public Library... Carey had written Hitler was a good guy on top of each page along with his own name and turned these notes over to Kirstein. No <laughs> I way. was like, what? Why would you do that? That makes no well, sense. Well, in, in the, the 60s, this would have been like very, very fresh. I mean, yeah, this is what, 15 years after World War II had ended? Like, those memories are fresh in everyone's mind. Okay. He suspected that these research notes, as well as a theft of his typewriter, had been orchestrated by Kirstein as a means to produce a manuscript under Carey's name, which could be used to trace him back to the typewriter and incriminate him in a JFK assassination. Right. Okay? Um, the author says, A convoluted theory, yes, but not out of the realm of speculation, especially if Kirstein was the actual... Uh, Brother-in-law. Yeah. E. Howard Hunt, or, yeah, E. Howard Hunt, uh, brother-in-law, or, was it brother-in-law? Yeah, brother-in-law. Um, so, during, um, during the Vietnam War, Nixon aides enlisted Hunt to forge incriminating correspondence linking President Kennedy to the assassination of Vietnam Prime Minister Diem. Conspiracy theorists have also linked Hunt to the alleged uh, Dr. Diaries of Lee Oswald and Arthur Brimmer, who attempted to assassinate presidential candidate George Wallace in 72. So, if Hunt was Kirstein, then who was Slim Brooks? Because they were the two... Right there. The, it, Slim, Slim was the other guy. Slim was the other guy. Slim Brooks and the brother-in-law. Yep. 
So Kay suspected that the true identity was of Slim was that of Jerry Milton Brooks, a former Guy Bannister employee and member of the Minutemen, a far-right militia organization active during the 60s. Um, so yes, that makes sense. Yes. They think these guys were basically the handlers of Carrie. Uh-huh. So, um, this kind of turns into Carrie thinking that he was somehow set up as a CIA... By, by, the, by the government. By these government uh-huh. CIA guys. Um, so... They give a couple, um, they give a couple, uh, excerpts, um, it says, uh, Fred Turner, um, in the Garrison Commission, it says, shortly after news of Garrison's investigation broke, I went to 531 Lafayette Plaza, an address given to me by Minuteman defector Jerry Milton Brooks, as, an, as the office of W. Guy Bannister, a former FBI official who ran a detective agency. According to Brooks, who had been a trusted Minuteman aide, Bannister was a member of the Minuteman and head of the Anti-Communist League of the Caribbean, assertedly an intermediary between the CIA and Caribbean insurgency movements. Brooks said he had worked for Bannister on anti-communist research in 61 and 62 and had known David Ferry as a frequent visitor to Bannister's office. So all these guys seem to be linked together. Mm-hmm. So... Um, as the 70s progressed, Thornley became increasingly paranoid and began to suspect that everyone he ever knew was yeah was setting him up, even his closest friends, and that he had some role in this crazy conspiracy. So Thornley wrote to Robert Anton Wilson, who was the Playboy guy. Uh-huh. That um, he go, he said, I am the most important man on the planet. I am the only one who knows all about the Kennedy assassination. Due to this dangerous knowledge, Kerry insisted that his life was threatened by this sinister group who wanted him silenced. So, Kerry even came to suspect that Wilson was his CIA babysitter. So he was just, it sounded like Kerry at this point was just paranoid yeah. out of his mind. Um... Carrie wrote in a letter to Robert Anton Wilson um, about his involvement um, in the assassination. Or, sorry. He related a mind-blowing acid trip where he'd taken, where memories of his involvement in the assassination bubbled to the surface, thus revealing his participation in... Everything, all part of a mind control experiment operated by the Office of Naval Intelligence. So this gets into MK Ultra and a bunch of crazy shit that um, Carrie suggested he was a victim of MK Ultra, and um, it says uh, it says by Jonathan Vankin in his Conspiracies, Cover-ups, and Crimes. Is Thornley intricately cons- is Thornley's intri- t- intricately conspiratorial autobiograph- autobiography an elaborate mind game he plays with himself and anyone who will join in, or is it really an or is he really an intelligence agent? 
um, with a macabre cover story for his role in the JFK conspiracy? Or is Carrie Thornley a helpless pawn in a game beyond anyone's comprehension who somehow figured out what had been happening to him? So. What are are your thoughts? So my initial thoughts were that um, Carrie was just nuts. Uh Uh-huh. I would say he definitely definitely went. Yeah. Obviously, once he became, like, paranoid. Yeah. Kind of lost it a little bit. Thing about it though is, if you buy into the people that he met in New Orleans actually being CIA agents, agents, yeah, then it could make sense that he really wasn't all that paranoid. But you have to buy into that, right? That's so. That's the thing that's kind of tough about it. Um, in the mid seventies, Carrie suspected that he'd been implanted with a mind control device. Uh huh. And during his service in the Marines, the mind control device during his service in the Marines, uh, Kerry um, later came to believe that um, this had actually started much earlier and perhaps before birth, that he was a product of a German breeding experiment. And that presumably, that presumably used him and Oswald as guinea pigs. So this just adds on. So, right, so ultimately it would seem that yeah. he. He thought he was a Manchurian candidate. Kind of lost it. Kind of, yeah, he kind of lost it. Um, wow. So, so I thought the story was over there. I thought it was just going to end. But, <laughs> um, so there's this um, district of Atlanta called Little Five Points. Um, it says it's a bohemian enclave where uh, Carrie gained reputation as a beloved and colorful character. So it follows, this last part follows the story of... Um, a guy named Frank Reese, who opened a bookstore. And he encountered Carrie, um, eventually hires him as an employee. Um, so, I wasn't quite sure where the story was headed at this point. And until um, it talks about Carrie um, was selling books outside, um, outside the bookstore at a flower stand. And he spoke to people of being under CIA surveillance and how the KGB had given him a, given him a disease after he was seduced by a Russian agent. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Frank Reese became aware of this conspiracy that Kerry was talking about and didn't really believe him. Until a couple run-ins with these strange, mm, these strange people in suits uh-huh. that... Um, he says that Reese talks about um, he he had this during the holidays. Um, he had this this event uh, at this bar where um, he held for the company, and these these people were kind of sitting away in the corner, and um, they bought drinks for everybody, and they went over and talked to uh, Reese and his wife went over and talked mm-hmm. to these people, and they somehow inevitably gotten to talk about Carrie and the assassinations uh-huh. and then these people just kind of left. Uh-huh. And, um, this happened again. Um, same people or different people? Different, a different, different people, but, um, he said that, um, he, he brought this up to Carrie Thornley and he said, Carrie's just like, oh yeah, this stuff happens all the time. They're all over the place. And, um, Carrie, it sounded like Carrie just kind of 
went with it. They kind of accepted that yeah. this, that the CIA was just following him. Was gonna sure. look after him for the rest of his life. Yeah. Now yeah, follow him around. Follow him around, and it ends with in the early nineties, uh, Carrie contracted a um, kidney disease called. Uh, well, it doesn't matter. In the coming years, <laughs> yeah, and I don't want to pronounce it. <laughs> in the coming years, um, he would get uh, some different maladies um, associated to the kidney disease, and he died in November nineteen ninety nine. And it says up until the very end, he believed. That this rare disease was the result of the very same conspiracy that bedeviled him for the most of his troubled life. Wow. So. Kind of just a massive web. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So do do you think Lee Harvey Oswald assassinated JFK? I don't. And acted alone? Not acted alone. He, I, he may have shot him, but I don't believe he acted alone. No, there's just, there's just no. I just can't believe there's a way that one you person. You don't think he was in the school book depository act just by himself, and I don't either. <laughs> I don't either. No, but I mean, dude, who knows? At this point, I feel like there's so many theories out there. There are. There's just. And it's been, it's been a long time. And I, I'm not sure that we will ever know the full truth. I don't think we will. Well, you know, as time, kind of like actually the story about the black tutors. As time goes on, people forget about it. Not that it wasn't an important event, but people forget they about forget, the they details. Forget, I was going to say, they forget the details. Forget the details. And, you know, it just fades away. And then someone comes across... Records or whatever. And I don't, they're passionate about it. Yeah, I mean this the uh, the story about the black tutors. The article doesn't go into how um, Kaufman got came across this fact about the black tutors, but I mean maybe it does in her book. But I mean, dude, maybe in the future some people will come across some crazy record about the JFK assassinations. If. Thornley was set up by the CIA to be like a fall guy. It would not surprise me if they like kept tabs on him, basically until he died. For sure, for sure. Does it seem to you like? I guess Thornley would only have been scapegoated if the Oswald thing hadn't worked out. Right. Right. Yeah. That does that what it seems? Is that what it seemed like to you? Uh huh. Well. Yes, it seemed like he was like a plan, like, two. Yeah. Like a plan B. Yeah. I wonder... Yeah. I wonder... So, Lee Harvey Oswald was killed shortly after the JFK, like, two or three days after... By Jack Ruby? By Jack Ruby. Mm Mm-hmm. And that... The story doesn't mention Jack Ruby. No, it does not. It does not. And... I wonder if, yeah, I just, I think it's all fascinating. Mm. So, so Lee Harvey Oswald never got to testify about the JFK assassination because he was killed. He was killed by Jack Ruby. And I'm curious to see if Thornley would have been brought up in Lee Harvey Oswald's testimony. That's a really good point. I did not think about that. Did not think about that. 
Hmm. Hmm. I also think it's interesting that they both work the same job at Atsugi Air Force Base. Uh huh. Right after each other. Right after each other, and Atsugi Air Force Base was basically a staging area for a lot of CIA activity at the time. I mean, working the same job, like what? I know. It's what, what it, 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 I understand. Like it has to be someone. Something you know, someone was was gonna get that job after Oswald, but right, like what? Like what are the odds? Mm. A lot of, if you believe in coincidences. <laughs> if you believe in such things. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I thought that was a, I've never heard all that other stuff. I've I, heard. I've never even heard of, of, uh, Carrie Thornley. Oh, I, no, I've never heard of Carrie Thornley either. That was a whole new name for me. Now I'd heard of some of the other guys, um, that they were talking about, like the three, uh, I don't, actors, if you will. Uh-huh. Three individuals that were barred in custody and released shortly after. But man, if, if you if you believe that all those guys were actually CIA assets, then it's pretty elaborate. Pretty elaborate, yeah, very elaborate. So the it, thing the thing about conspiracy theories, something like this, is how elaborate that is. That means like I'm sure a lot of people would have to know, and for something like this to work, you need you need a small circle. Yeah, because the more people you keep building, the more uh, the more likely the truth's gonna get out. Yeah, exactly. More likely it could get complicated. So, so yeah. Hopefully, I don't know if uh, if anyone else has heard that story, but if you haven't, I thought it was when I when I googled Carrie Thornley's name. I didn't. I didn't click on it. Yeah. Oh yeah, I did. It's in purple. It says Carrie Thornley is lo- is a key to the JFK assassination. Wow. Published February nineteenth, twenty seventeen. Oh wow. So, I sh- one short year ago. Yeah, I should give creds to the. Uh, I should give creds to the author. Well, let me go back to the. Uh, to the book or to the uh, story, if I can find it. Yes, I I do not know what what portion I believe or like who helped Lee Harvey Oswald, but I I do not subscribe to the fact that he. I don't know if he shot JFK, but I don't think he acted alone. I also don't think he shot JFK, so I guess I do know. <laughs> and I definitely don't. I like that is maybe for me. I don't like if you, if it's a yes or no. Yeah. It would be no. He didn't shoot JFK and. No, he didn't act alone. Yeah. But I would be more surprised if he was the shooter. Yeah. I don't I think it is very 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 unlikely that he acted alone. Well, it sounds from what I've from what we've heard of uh Lee Harvey Oswald, it sounds like he was a very impressionable person. Uh-huh. And so that's like the perfect scapegoat. Yeah. Well, and well, right. And if you need Even- a, if you need a plan B, uh Thornley they it's noted that he started a made up he started made up religion, and yeah. I, I skipped over the part where and it was anti-government. Yeah, I skipped over the part where it talks about um, a witch in New Orleans that supposedly had contact with Carrie and just some crazy yeah. shit. So anyway, yeah. But anyway, um, I want to give credit to Adam Go Rightly who uh, wrote that in um, Dark Lore. Very good stuff. Um, and yeah, I think that's all we got. Yeah. Oh, wow. my God. Um, this episode's coming out a little late, so I apologize for that. But, uh, you know, 
Business for the businessmen. <laughs> Got to make money. Got to make money. So um, we thank you for listening. What episode number is this? 31. 31. 31. Ooh. Damn. 31. Crazy. You can check us out on Audio Boom. That is crazy. Um, find us on Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, rate and review. Um, follow us on Twitter at World We Live Pod. Um, tw- the Twitter followers are going up. Are they? I think we're at 52. Wow. <laughs> Slowly but surely. Pump those numbers up. Also, we we got tweeted at. Oh, yeah, we got tweeted at. Um, yeah, we got tweeted at. We got... Um, Let me find that. I, I also got Facebook it. messaged. Um, what was that, I'm not a couple gonna, weeks ago? Yeah, I'm not going to mention names just because people probably don't want to mention names. But We did. We got, we got tweeted at. Yeah, thank you guys for that. Um, interaction. Yeah, interaction. Keep that coming. We like that. This um, this one was a little a little uh, backhanded compliment on the on the tweet. <laughs> yeah, it was. It says, been, it says been listening to your guys' podcast and I, I find myself enjoying it more than I thought that I would. So <laughs> I don't I don't know if that is a reflection on us or it's probably on you, not on me. <laughs> maybe maybe he was you know maybe he he didn't know maybe he has other interests and he didn't know what he was getting into. Yeah. Sounds like we're making him think, though, so... We are. We thank you for that, man, and uh, anyone else who's tweeted at us, we appreciate you. Um, and, yeah. Catch us, uh, as on the previously mentioned, uh, mediums, and uh, we'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>